Welcome to A Well-Cared-For Human, the podcast that tries to convince you that you are 100% normal and an even better than okay example of the human species, despite the fact that sometimes we feel like the craziest, most incapable, or worthless creatures on the face of this planet. I'm Corey, an author, a creative, and the host of the show. Whatever you're bringing to the table today, I hope this episode proves to be a dose of inspiration for you on your quest to become a well-cared-for human. You can find the episode show notes, your free wellness blueprint, and more at awellcaredforhuman.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Humans, it's me, Corey, back with another episode of A Well-Cared-For Human as we continue our tour of our Essential Tools Toolbox. Thus far, I've talked about meditation, journaling, affirmation, and exercise, and today I want to look at diet. Diet is another one of those impossible-to-cover-for-everyone-and-all-of-their-different-circumstances topics, so I'll just be sticking to my experiences in hopes that you'll still be able to gain some helpful insight into your own situation. So whatever works for you, take it and use that, and whatever doesn't work, throw it to the wayside. So diet, where to even begin? I don't know about you, but for me, the word diet has some emotional residue to it. Personally, my relationship with food is very complicated. I could write a whole book just on my relationship with food. But watch me try to break it down in a 20-minute episode. Here we go. My first memories of food, like for most people, are from my childhood. When you're little, if you're lucky, people feed you. But my mom couldn't cook at all not even a little bit. She could throw some Quaker oats into a bowl and add milk. She could make me toast, especially cinnamon toast, which is where you slather a piece of white bread with butter and sprinkle cinnamon and sugar on it before broiling it in the oven until it caramelized, which sounds amazing right now. Maybe I'm going to go make myself some after I finish recording this. But when I was with her, most of what I ate came from a can or a box. Definitely nothing like a salad. I think on Thanksgiving we would get something like canned corn or peas or carrots because they can also come from a can and can be soaked in butter. There's also canned yams, if I recall correctly. And I remember walking home from school. I was a latchkey kid, by the way, so I would walk myself home and let myself in while my mom and her partner were still at work for the day. And I would just like eat craft cheese slices out of the cellophane by themselves. And when I was living with my dad, it wasn't much better. He did know how to cook a bit, but mostly he would cook things like spaghetti and mac and cheese. He could grill you a steak and bake you a potato. And he could also do breakfast stuff, like eggs and bacon. For many years, he liked to make this thing called shit on a shingle, which was apparently hamburger sauteed in a pan and then mixed into white gravy and poured over bread. I don't know if he learned how to make this in the military or in prison, but it was an experience. He also made me a lot of egg sandwiches in the mornings before I went to school. He would fry an egg and put a piece of cheese between two slices of Wonder Bread before we left for the morning. And it is one of my fond memories of me going to school with my warm egg sandwich and its paper towel. But again, there wasn't much in the way of vegetables or greens in my diet. Not a ton of fruit either, or whole foods in general. I do remember my grandmother peeling apples and salting them for me. And I also remember her rolling an orange around and around on the countertop to make it squishy, and then cutting a hole in the top so I could suck the orange juice out. This is like the poor southern kid's juice box, (laughs) y'all. I also have a good memory of her making biscuits. 
So as I reached adulthood, I could make biscuits and I could eat a piece of fruit. But in general, I didn't have a good role model of what a balanced diet looked like, or much instruction on how to cook for myself, or even what healthy eating was. Add this to the fact that most people like to eat things they have fond memories of, meals from their childhood shared with family and friends. That's the kind of stuff we gravitate toward because eating is above all a comforting act. But because of my relationship with my family, because it's very painful and there's a lot of emotional turmoil and upheaval in my past, when I go to eat, still to this day, I encounter a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of discrepancy between the foods that I'm used to and gravitate toward and the foods that are actually healthy and good for me. And sometimes crossing that distance feels impossible. And it took me a long time before I realized how much this unstable history was interfering with my eating goals. I would be really hard on myself about it. I'd be like, God, why can't I just eat better? Why can't I just prioritize cooking? Why can't I... so on and so forth. Because we're always so quick to blame ourselves, or at the very least, I know I am, for my perceived failures as a human. And that's why it took me so long to realize that one of my biggest hurdles in feeding myself were emotional ones. It's because when I go to eat something, I bring the entire complicated emotional past I have with my family and my experiences to my moments of eating. That's also probably how I ended up becoming bulimic. So let's talk about that. When I was 24, I became bulimic. And I was technically considered a severe bulimic, which they say is 8 to 13 episodes of purging a week. And this went on for about 15 months. I do remember the first time I threw up, intentionally, after eating a brownie earthquake from Dairy Queen. And the emotion behind it was I really wanted this Sunday, but I couldn't have it because I was too fat, too ugly, and I had no self-control, so I didn't deserve to have it. But I wanted it. So somehow in my brain, a switch was flipped, and I was like, okay, well, I can have it, but I can't keep it. And voila, bulimia. And slowly there was this sort of thrill to it. I would get excited to go to the grocery and walk into the bakery section with all the cakes and the donuts and stuff. And I couldn't see my own face, of course, but I bet if I could, my eyes would have been dilating and maybe my chest would have been heaving. In fact, I bet I looked like Edward Cullen, desperate to take a bite out of Bella Swan. I was definitely becoming addicted to this feeling of control. And then why did I want control? Because on one hand, I had all of these people... My father, well-meaning friends, and society telling me I needed to lose weight, to be smaller, to shrink myself down. Coming up against my competing desire to be free, to eat whatever I wanted, and to not feel so put upon by everyone's expectations and demands of me. But slowly, that reward feeling I was getting from binging and purging, feeling like I was getting away with something... Like I was in control of myself, finally, at long last, after a childhood where pretty much everything was out of my control all of the time. This sort of boost went away, and what I was left with was this crushing disappointment in myself and what I was doing. And finally, after many months of this, I came face to face with the fact that I hated myself. I had also started therapy around the same time I had become bulimic. I didn't go to therapy for that. I went for all of the other many reasons <laughs> that I have outlined thus far in the podcast with my family and our situation. In truth, I didn't think my bulimia was the problem. I thought it was the one thing I was finally getting right, if I'm being totally honest. Regardless, I don't know if it was just because therapy was starting to work or if my awareness had finally reached a certain threshold, but whatever it was... One day, I just realized that my bulimia was a form of self-hatred. I did it because I didn't love myself. 
I didn't like how I looked. I viewed my body and my appetites and my desire to eat as a problem rather than something natural that happens. I had a lot of negative narratives, negative self-talk in my head about how I was weak and out of control and undeserving of food. And once I began to finally see this, I was like, wow, okay, this is a problem. I do want to change, but this isn't where I want to be either. And it wasn't like I was able to stop right away. There's the noticing, and then there's the noticing and still doing the bad habit, and then there's the slowly tapering off of the bad habit. How I stopped myself and how I work with addictive patterns in general is probably a topic for a future episode. But let's just say that I was 25 going on 26 when I decided to rebuild my relationship with my body. And no lie, I am absolutely still working on that relationship today at 38, 12 years later. I haven't been bulimic since I quit, but that doesn't mean that I love my body all of the time. Which is why I said in episode 1 that I felt like my relationship with my body pillar was still in a rebuild because I reached a really low point in that aspect of my care. But how did I go from using diet as a way to punish myself to using it as a tool for loving and caring for myself? The answer is slowly, very, very slowly. It began with the awareness I mentioned, beginning to understand why things were so hard for me around food, why I had so many triggers when it came to eating, why I got so stressed about food and eating, and also acknowledging what bad habits I had that kept me from making the improvements I wanted to make. For example, I work a lot. I have a lot of projects in the fire at any given time. I podcast, but I also release five or six books a year. And I do a lot of other stuff, like take classes and learn languages and things like that, so I just don't prioritize cooking. Because I have learned that to eat healthy, you have to cook for yourself, or you have to have a really exorbitant budget in which you can pay other people to make you healthy food, which I do not at present have that exorbitant budget. So it comes down to me cooking for myself. And you're probably thinking, oh, well, Corey, just work less. Well, I can't do that because my sense of self-worth is attached to how productive I am, but that is an issue for a future episode. So after acknowledging why it was so hard for me and what was setting me back, Then I worked to identify what I wanted my diet to do for me. And I decided that I wanted my food to make me happy. I wanted to enjoy eating. I wanted food to connect me with the people I love. I wanted to feel good about the food choices I made, not just for myself, but for the planet and the environment. And I kind of arrived at this when I considered all of my values and what mattered to me, so that I would have a clear sense of what I was working toward. Once I started to get this clear picture of what I wanted, I used journaling and affirming and all my other tools to get clear on what I wanted, by the way. And then I began to make the smallest, teeniest changes that I could. Because I am an all-or-nothing person who will break both of her arms trying to carry 10 bags of groceries in at one time rather than just making a second reasonable trip back to the car. Which in short is to say, I tend to overdo it. So because I have this trait, I really have to break things down, usually past the point that I think is ridiculous, just so that I don't trigger overwhelm in myself and give up. My first babyest of steps was to remove all restrictions for myself. I stopped telling myself what I could eat, when I could eat it, anything that sounded like a rule or a forbidden, I just took everything off of the table. This did mean that for a little while I began to gain weight, because I no longer scrutinized everything that was going into my mouth. But for my mental health, this lack of restriction was very helpful. It allowed me to relax in a lot of ways. 
And slowly, after I built up this space, I was able to start thinking about how much I love the planet and animals and how my grandmother had had four heart attacks and my mom had had a stroke and just heart stuff in general wasn't looking good in my family medical history. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to have one restriction. I'm going to be vegetarian because it'll be better for me and it'll be better for the planet and I'll be really proud of myself for eating that way. And before you ask, no, Kim is not a vegetarian. In fact, this past Sunday, when I made her French toast for brunch, I also fried her up some sausage. But I don't eat meat, and that makes me happy. I shouldn't eat dairy, probably because I'm allergic and will start sneezing and my sinuses swell up and it gives me dark circles and headaches, but sometimes I do it anyway. Hello, ice cream that I love so much. But when I make a mistake like this, forgiveness is the default. And that's so important that I'll say it twice. Forgiveness is the default. I try to watch how I talk to myself, and I try not to beat myself up if I make mistakes or fall short of my expectations. I have to keep accepting that food is hard for me. It might not be hard for other people. My wife, for example, has few issues around food. She has no problem prioritizing her cooking. She eats what she wants. She has great memories around food. But for me, it's hard. So I have to give myself a break. And I think that's the only reason why my diet has improved so much. Now I eat a lot of fruits and veggies and I can cook more for myself. And I think that's possible because now I'm so much more gentler with myself than I have been in the past. So don't knock gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness, despite what other people might tell you. You can be gentle and still reach your goals. But also don't be surprised if you make changes and discover things about yourself and have to make more changes and tweaks. For example, as I began to move toward a healthier diet, I realized what a problem sugar was for me. I'm not diabetic or anything, but when I eat too much sugar, my moods are all over the place. Literally on like day three, after a lot of sugar, I'll start crying about absolutely nothing. And Kim will look at me and say, babe, I think you need to slow down on the sugar. <laughs> because she knows at this point that if I have too much of it, I just become very emotionally unwell. I don't know what it is or why it spikes me this way, but it absolutely does. So for that reason, I am trying to be more mindful about how and when I consume sugar because my emotional well-being is really important to me. So in short, look at what you want for yourself. Food is meant to give you energy and comfort and connection to other people. Make a short list of goals that you want for yourself in regard for your diet. Take the babiest of baby steps and speak super gently to yourself as you go. Try not to do the things that will hurt you more than help you. And remember that forgiveness is the default. All right, I know that was a lot. Like I said, I could write a whole book on everything I've learned about food as I've tried to figure things out for myself. But let's stop here for today. Next episode, sleep. And why yes, even you need it. This episode of A Well-Cared-For Human was written and produced by me. Corey Marie. The music was by Late Night Feeler and Esther Abrami. If you like what I'm doing here, please consider visiting my Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you get early ad-free access to the episodes, as well as a monthly patrons-only Q&A, bonus videos, and more. Not to mention that your Patreon support lets me know that you find value in the show and want it to continue. You can find me on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Marie. If you can't support the show financially, that is okay. You can still subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, and recommend the show to your friends, not just the neurotic ones. All of this helps so much. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>